Please uh, stand and join me in reading God's word. I'm Cody. I'm part of our First Impressions team, and uh, welcome everyone to church today. I'll be reading from 1 Thessalonians uh, 5, verse 16 through 28. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Jesus Christ. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test all of them. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Thanks be to God for the beauty of his word. Uh, good morning. How are we doing? Nine o'clock. Got a full house. Love it. Uh, you know, sometimes I miss the days when it was a victory just to actually get to church with the kids. So I'm sure a lot of you can relate to that. But now my kids drive and they actually made it to the nine o'clock, which is amazing. So most of the time we see students at 1115, but mine will probably be here for both services since I'm speaking today, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Well, um, it's so good to be with you this morning. My name is Dan. I'm one of the leaders here. Um, and as um, Mike was mentioning, Derek did get the morning off, a well-deserved uh, break this morning. So he's probably surfing. I don't think he slept in. If I know Derek, he's, uh, he's, he's out there in the waves somewhere. So, But we've, uh, we've been in a series in Thessalonians. So this morning, we're going to be wrapping up 1 Thessalonians. We're at 1 Thessalonians um, chapter 5, where... Um, Paul is giving some final instructions to the church in Thessalonica. Um, and just so you know, at the end of that, we're, I'm not going to get to the part where we greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. So, <laughs> sorry guys, we won't be talking about that one today, but interpret that one however you will. Um, but what, what appears here is, is sort of a hodgepodge of instructions that, that Paul is um, giving to the church as he closes out this letter. But there really is a theme um, that when we read these verses together, there's a theme that comes out of it. And I believe that that theme is worship. It's been said, um, you may have even read his book, Stephen Covey, who is a famous author, on, uh, wrote a lot of leadership books. One of the things that, uh, one of the phrases that he's coined with saying was, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Who's heard that before? Yeah. So the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And for us in the church and as followers of Jesus Christ, the question really becomes, well, what is the main thing for us? And I would argue that the main thing for us and the main thing for the church is worship. Worship is the heartbeat of all that we are in the church. It's, it's not just what we come here to do on Sundays where we sing songs, but really all of life is worship. So I'm going to try and support this idea that worship is the main thing in the church. It's really where all of us is headed, right? We're all worshiping, it's the goal of all of human history. We're moving towards the feet of Jesus. In fact, we see a beautiful depiction of this in Ephesians chapter 1, where um, the Apostle Paul 
talks about that you were chosen before the foundation of the world to what? And, and adopted as sons, that you were chosen and adopted to what? To the praise of his glorious grace. That's what he says, to the praise of his glorious grace. And worship is what we were made for. Um, Derek's talked about this before, but in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is one of our kind of our church governing documents, one of the things that we look to as sort of church guidance, um, the first question is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer to that question is the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's the first question, the first answer. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. 1 Peter 2.9, you're a chosen people. Remember when he said this, a chosen people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, that you may declare the praises of him who called you. Worship is the reason that God redeems us. Uh, worshiping is also how we grow in worship. So we worship, but we worship, at, we um, grow in worship as we worship. And we're all worshiping something. You've heard us talk about this before. I've talked about it. Derek's talked about it. Dave's talked about it. We do a thing called the Freedom Course um, every few years. I know many of you have been through that. But it really, what it helps us to look at is what are the things that we worship besides God? We all serve something, right? And, with, and that thing that we serve controls us. It can be money. It can be just having control over the circumstances and situations in our life. It can be comfort. It can be power. It can be the approval of others. But Jesus was very clear in Matthew 6. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And what's interesting, after he says this, in uh, verse 25 of Matthew 6, he says, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. So he says, you cannot serve two masters, therefore do not worry about your life. And so in my mind, what that means is that when we think about worry, we all suffer from a little worry every now and then. Maybe you're carefree and don't at all, but the majority of us would say, yeah, there are times at life when I'm, when I'm given to worry or anger or bitterness. These can often be indicators that we're worshiping something other than Jesus. And one of the things that I love about Sunday is just to have the opportunity to experience worship together. And I think, you know, when we sing um, and the band's up here, you know, I, I sometimes picture in my mind just the removing of those idols, those things that I run to um, to find, you know, that, that I believe are going to be life-giving besides Jesus. It's just so nice on a Sunday to be able to sing together, worship the true living God, and feel those things kind of fade away as we cast our eyes on Jesus. Um, but beyond Sunday, it's, it took me the better part of my life to realize that really all of life is worship. All of life. We're all worshiping something, even in this moment. Something is capturing your heart. Uh, this morning, when you battled it out with your family before you got here, yelled at your kids, so we have to be here at 9 o'clock, something was ruling your heart, and it was, I don't want to be the one to walk in late to church. There's hardly any seats at 9 o'clock anyway, so... Um, so the question for us today is, how can we be better worshipers? If this is the main thing, if this is the most important thing about us and what we do in the life of a church and as believers, how can we be better worshipers? Not for ourselves. This isn't about be a better worshiper for you. It's about being a better worshiper for the one that we seek to honor. So today, we're going to look at what I'm calling three ingredients to becoming 
a better worshiper. Three ingredients to becoming a better worshiper. I like to cook, so we're just going to call them ingredients. It's going to go into our worship recipe, and we're going to be serving it on the grounds later. It'll be great. <laughs> the first way is to cultivate a worshiping attitude. Cultivate a worshiping attitude. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you worship me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. True worship, true worship always begins in the heart. True worship is always about the heart. It's the thing that Jesus went after. It's the thing that Mike just talked about, even with our money. God doesn't want your money. He wants your heart. So true worship always begins there. Paul says that there are three characteristics of a worshiping attitude uh, here in 1 Thessalonians. So if we go to verse 16, the first attitude that he talks about is joy. He says, rejoice always. He's telling the church to rejoice always. And you'll see this terminology, always, all, um, and continually. We'll talk about those words, what those, those words mean in a second. But so often for us, if you're like me, joy just seems to be elusive, doesn't it? It just seems like we know it's something deep down inside, especially as believers that we should have, but it seems so elusive. We come here on a Sunday uh, we rejoice in his presence. We focus on what he's done for us. But beyond Sunday, how does that permeate our thoughts? How does that, how does that affect how we live? And when I'm tempted to be despondent or angry, it's in these moments that I need to be reminded of what he's done for me. So not just on a Sunday when we sing about it, and I'm like, yes, Jesus, this is, this is what I've forgotten all week, that I've run after other things. But it's it's all of life. It's waking up tomorrow morning, and the first thing remembering on your mind is what he's done for you, and that's freed you from a life of, of slavery, freed you from sin, freed you from bondage. He's done it for you, and he's done it for me. And it's in these moments that we can find joy, and I think um, we can do that even in the midst, even in the midst of sorrow. In fact, I think sometimes we think of joy as being the opposite of sorrow, but what we see in Scripture is really this beautiful, almost marriage of joy and sorrow being together. In fact, um, Paul, in 2 Corinthians 6.10, he says, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. And then in Psalm 126, he says, those, uh, those who sow in tears shall reap shouts of joy. Those who sow in tears shall reap shouts of joy. So we don't, we don't cast sorrow aside. We bring sorrow. Even this morning as we're worshiping, there are things happening in our lives. There are things happening in the world around us that break our hearts, that we're sorrowful for. But we can have joy in the midst of that sorrow, that they can um, happen simultaneously. We rejoice for what he's done, what he is doing, and what he will do in our midst. And so even with sorrow, we can bring an attitude of joy as we worship him. So an attitude of joy, the second characteristic he talks about of a worshiping attitude is prayer. So he says, rejoice always and pray continually. And so this idea of prayer, it's not just, I think sometimes we think prayer is just about words that we speak to God, but in, the essence of prayer is really entering into the presence of God and experiencing fellowship with him, entering into the presence of God and experiencing fellowship with him. So we come today expecting and trusting that God will keep his promises, 
the things that he's promised on the pages of Scripture, that, we'll, that those things will continue to be carried out in our lives. We come to participate. I think sometimes we think worship is a spectator sport, that we're here to listen to a band, to hear a talk. Um, but here's the thing. I mean, the way that the room is set up this morning, we have a stage, and I'm up here talking, and the microphone's on, and you're sitting there looking at me. But guess what? You're not the audience. And I think sometimes just because of the dynamic of the way that we've set up our production on a Sunday, it feels like you could be the audience and we're just up, you know, and that we're the participants. But in essence, who is the audience? God. God is the audience. And so if, you're, if, you're, if God is the audience, that makes you the performers, not me, not the band. You're the performers. And so a performer doesn't perform in something and walk away and say, did I get anything out of my performance? No, the performer walks away and says, did I do my best? Did I give it my all? Did I pour myself out into this? And so I think those are the questions that we need to be asking ourselves on a Sunday. We understand that we're here not to be entertained, but ex to experience. We talked about our mission being to invite anyone and everyone into, to experience the unending ocean of grace. Are we experiencing that? We're here to experience fellowship with God. It changes. When we experience that, it changes how we speak to him, how we speak with him. Life becomes then walking with God and speaking to him. I mean, I talk to God all day long. It's not just about this formal prayer where, you know, we do the, you know, the way we think about prayer, the way we were brought up thinking about prayer maybe even, that it's really just, it's, a, it's entering into God's presence and having fellowship with him and then talking to him. We should be talking to God a lot throughout our day. So the, um, the third characteristic of a worshiping attitude is thankfulness. So we see rejoice always, pray continually, and then he says give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. It's like we, I this is a great set of verses to memorize here too, because if you think, we all ask that question, what is the will of God? Well, it says it right here. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. It's interesting the words that are used. So he says, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. That doesn't leave a lot of room for other suggestions. And I would suspect that some of you here this morning are going through a difficult time. And you say, all right, you're telling me to give thanks in all circumstances, but you don't know my circumstances. I know some of your stories, not all of them, but I know there are people here going through real, difficult, challenging circumstances in their life today. And I think sometimes the temptation in the church is that we produce what I'll call an inauthentic thankfulness, right? We put on a smile, everything's good, hey brother, you know, we smile at everybody, but deep down inside, we want to tell everyone that things aren't great, because they're not. I mean, we, you know, we, we live in a world that is broken and fallen, and the reality of that, whether it's sickness, whether it's death, whether it's things are just not right, that's the reality that we live in. So the Bible never says to deny that hurt. It never says to deny the hard times. In fact, the verse doesn't say, give thanks for all circumstances. It doesn't say give thanks for all circumstances. It says give thanks in 
all circumstances. You see, circumstances have nothing to do with your attitude. The circumstances of your life are well beyond your control oftentimes, but how you look at your circumstances has everything to do with our attitude. So you can't control your circumstances, but we can control how we look at those circumstances. And when we look at our circumstances, we have to understand, too, all of us in here, regardless of the circumstances that we're in, we look at those circumstances with different glasses on, different, uh, from a different perspective. A lot of that is based on maybe how we were brought up, the kind of relationships that we had, the environment that we were in. Our worldview has been shaped by a lot of different experiences. And so we wear different glasses and we view our circumstances differently. And here's the thing. There's no corrective lens that will make that 100%, that we're always going to have the need to have our vision corrected. So you think about this idea of thankfulness. I love this quote from Tim Keller. He says, if Jesus didn't complain when he received a life infinitely worse than he deserved, why should we complain when all, we get, when all of us get a life that infinitely better than we deserve? If Jesus, if Jesus received a life infinitely worse than he deserved, why should we complain when all of us get a life infinitely better than we deserve? And that's true, because here's the reality. All of us in here, because of our sin and falling short of God, we deserve death. That is really what we deserve. So if you're breathing today, and you're here, and you hear my voice, then you're getting a life better than you deserve. So if we want better lenses, we need to cultivate the work of the Spirit. And Paul talks about this kind of in the next um, set of verses here. So we have uh, a worshiping attitude is the first ingredient. The second ingredient is to cultivate the work of the Spirit. Cultivate the work of the Spirit. If we want better lenses, we have to cultivate the work of the Spirit. Again, we're taking our, our cues from Paul here. He says in verse 19, Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good and reject every kind of evil. Do not quench the spirit. We hear that word quench, we think, well, I'm just quenching my thirst right now, right? But literally means here to extinguish. So Paul's saying don't extinguish the spirit. Now this troubled me a bit because we're talking about, and you've heard, I mean, we preach every week, we talk about the sovereignty of God, that God is omnipotent. This is the omnipotent spirit of God. And to suggest that he can be quenched, which just means to be restricted or hindered in some way, really messes with my whole view of what, what I think about God. We believe and teach that the spirit of God is able to come, overcome all resistance to the gospel and bring an unregenerate person to see the light, the knowledge received in the face of Christ. We believe that the Spirit operates, as the Spirit operates in the life of a believer, no amount of human resistance can thwart that work. No amount of human resistance can thwart the work of God in our lives. That we believe that. Yet in some way, as, as we read these verses, it's challenging. We say, somehow, in some way, in some sense, he's granted to the believer, the power and authority to either release or restrict the power, uh, what the Spirit does. I, like I said, I believe wholeheartedly in the sovereignty of God. Romans 8, 28 tells us that God does all things according to his will for the good of those who, who love him. 
I don't easily embrace limitations, and neither should you, on what God does. Yet Paul tells me that the Spirit comes to us in a fire to be flamed or to be doused with human fear and control. So it's either a fire to be fanned into flame or to be doused. Now, certainly the Holy Spirit can accomplish all he wills to accomplish, but it's also true in certain circumstances, especially when it comes to the idea of spiritual gifts. We talk about this a lot in the church, that he rarely, he rarely forces himself upon us. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 14, this is Paul again speaking. He says, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. That's uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 32. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets, which I take to mean that the Spirit doesn't act on us as if we were puppets, but he happily subjects himself to our decision concerning when and how and for how long we operate in the spiritual gifts. Is that not, that's a little bit of a frightening thought, um, but somehow you and I can make choices to determine whether and to what extent we will operate freely the, um, the Spirit will operate powerfully and freely in our midst. It'd be much easier if Paul just told us, don't worry, the Spirit's going to accomplish what it wants to accomplish, whether you, regardless of what you do or say. But Paul's word in this passage doesn't let us do that. He's, he's saying as a command, don't quench the Spirit, don't despise prophecy. And what does this have to do with worship? So I think oftentimes we reduce the work of the Spirit to little more than a force of energy that permeates the universe. We, just, we know that God's Spirit exists and it's out there, but it's nothing more than just kind of this force that's at work. But you know what? If you think about forces at work, gravity's at work right now. You're all sitting, our feet are on the ground. But gravity doesn't get quenched when we send a man into space. I mean, it, you know, forces are just forces, but we're talking about the Holy Spirit being a vibrant, thinking, feeling, life-giving person living in you and me as the temple of God, never grows weary of directing our hearts towards Jesus. If you are someone who says, and I hear this oftentimes in the church, I just don't feel the presence of God. I don't feel, I don't feel his power at work with me. I, no, I don't I feel distant from God. I don't feel that he has that closeness like I hear a lot of people talk about in the church. Or on a Sunday, if, you know, if, if you're not, there's not something in you that wants to really sing, cry out those words that are on the screen to God as a prayer as we worship him. Or dare I say even, I've had this, you know, before where I'm sitting there worshiping and all of a sudden I just kind of, you feel a little bullfrog in your throat. You know, you feel a little tear cut. Like, these are emotions that I believe the Spirit produces in us as we worship Him. And if you're not experiencing these things, if you would say, I don't feel close to God, I feel that God is distant, or I don't, I'm not affected by worship on a Sunday, then I would say that you're either not a believer or you haven't fanned into flame the work of the Spirit. We may be quenching the Spirit in our worship. We need to, I need to be open to God to come before Him to say, God, am I quenching your Spirit in the way that I worship, in the way that I carry out my life, the way that, you know, if all, if all of life is worship, am I quenching the Spirit in some way in that worship, in 
and in, in not inviting or fanning into flame what he's doing. Everything you know about Jesus, everything that we understand from the Bible, if ever we've been strengthened when we're weak or felt hope in the midst of despair, you owe all of that to the Spirit. He comforts us. 1 Corinthians 14.1 says, Follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. And I know I used to read this verse, and it scared me a little bit because I'm like, I was what we would call a cessationist. I believed that the gifts of the Spirit were not relevant for the church. I think that was just a time and a place in an apostolic age, and many of you may hold, hold that view. We would definitely call you brothers and sisters. But I had to honestly come before God and say, you know, get rid of my sin. I was cynical about it. I thought anytime you talked about gifts of the Spirit and all of that, somebody had just watched a little too much TBN and the purple hair lady, and it was blowing people and pushing people over, and, you know, just that craziness you saw. That kind of stuff, like, made me angry. But I had to get honest before God and say, it's very clear in his word that we should eagerly desire the spiritual gifts, especially prophecy. And so if you're a believer today and you haven't come before God and say, God, I want all that you have for me in, in these spiritual gifts, it's time to get honest with God and, and see what he has for you. And I know for me, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't speak in tongues or anything like that, but I've said, God, if that's what you want me to do, I, I'm open to it. And so you know, I'm not sure where you are in that whole thing, but, you know, just get honest with God. Be open to what, how he might have you operate in the gifts of the Spirit. What if God wanted to use you today to heal somebody? God can do that. And it's not about you and the power of the one who is praying over someone, but God uses that. And it's one of the reasons that we incorporate prayer ministry into our services just to provide an opportunity to not quench the Spirit, to invite the Spirit to come. That's why we say, come Holy Spirit. Um, I love these. There's a, a couple of section of verses that I wanted to read from Ephesians. Ephesians 1, um, 17 through 20, he says, I keep asking, this is Paul, again, this is another letter that he wrote to the church in Ephesus. He, he prays, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the Spirit of wisdom and revelation, so that you may know him better. You see that? He's giving the Spirit so that you may have wisdom and revelation, that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. That's powerful. That is a powerful spirit. That same power is the same as what raised Christ from the dead. And then he goes on to pray in Ephesians 3. He says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, listen to this, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness 
of God. And then you've heard this, voice, this uh, verse before, but I love it. Now, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to what? His power that is at work within us. His power that is at work within us. Not in a self-help book. Not in the latest, greatest thing that's going to cure your whatever. <laughs> according to the power that is at work within us, in his spirit. So when we think about worship, it's really our responsibility to do whatever we can within biblical parameters to intensify the work, the, the, the spirit of God, the work of the spirit of God in you. If we allow anything else, anything else to fuel our life, our ministry, our worship, then according to what we read this morning, we're potentially um, quenching the Spirit. Okay, wrapping up here. I basically says, that's why I love when Dan talks. He's so short. <laughs> so we talked about these ingredients to becoming a better worshiper. Last one is simple, yet often overlooked. So first was cultivate a worshiping attitude. Secondly, cultivate the work of the Holy Spirit. Third is rely on God's grace. And I don't want it to seem like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth here because I believe God accomplishes his will no matter what we do. But we certainly see that we, when we invite the Spirit that different things can happen. And so we have to rely on God's grace. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, 24 Paul kind of finishes up this way. He says, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 24, this is key. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. I love that. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. I think one of the best verses that we think is in the Bible that's not actually in the Bible is that God helps those that help themselves. Do you know that's not in the Bible? <laughs> Maybe you did. But we often love to say it and think it, right? God helps those that helps, who help themselves. We can't in and of ourselves do this. We can't do it. But the beautiful thing about the way Paul wraps up chapter 5 here is that he gives us a promise. He says he will do it. He is faithful and he will do it. That's grace. That's the grace of God. And we have to lean into that. If we're going to be true worshipers, if we're going to get better at worship, it's not about be better, do better. It's about relying on his grace to get us through. You see, Jesus lived the perfect life of worship. When he came to earth, he lived the perfect life of worshiping God on our behalf. And he went to the cross and he died for all of the things that we tend to worship. He died for our idols. He died for our idolatry. He went to the cross and did that. And died for all the things that we worship. And that's the Jesus Christ that we serve this morning. That's the Jesus Christ that we worship. And so I believe it starts, starts with God's grace in our lives to open our eyes to the reality of things that we don't often see. 
but we want to be believers who invite space for the Spirit to work. We're going to have an opportunity to do that here in a few minutes, and maybe you've never really dialed into that because you feel like it's not in your vein of spirituality or the way you're used to doing church, but it's a beautiful thing, and God works in those moments. He encourages people, and so as a church, we want to come before God and say, we don't want to quench your Spirit. We want to invite the work of the Spirit. We want to pray over people. So we have an opportunity to do that this morning. And then just the circumstances of our life. I think just coming out of this morning, I'm just thinking of that reality of how joy and sorrow can be simultaneous. And it just it doesn't seem like that that works, but I know many of us come in here this morning with sorrowful, a sorrowful spirit based on either things that are happening in our own lives or the things that we see around us. And just know that God can give us joy in the midst of our sorrow, that he takes our tears and he turns them in to joy because of what Jesus accomplished on our behalf. And that's a beautiful encouragement thing that we can get excited about and move into worship and responding to that this morning. So let's stand. Father, we thank you that that you are a God who isn't far from us, that you're a God that moves close in our greatest times of need, that your grace is ever present in the life of believers this morning. God, we thank you that we worship a God who can be fully trusted, fully known, and we can be ourselves this morning, that we can authentically come before you and just say, hey, it wasn't a great week, I need you. We run to so many other things, God, but I just thank you that with open arms, you stand there waiting to bring us back home. We just thank you.